You are listening to Best Life After Cancer, episode number 67. This week, I'm going to be sharing with you some of what I've learned about surviving a crisis and doing so with a bit of grace. But first, one of my 2022 goals is to have 100 written reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening on Apple, please take a minute to subscribe and write a review. When we get to 100, I will stop asking. So the sooner we get there, the better, because I'd rather just jump straight to the podcast. Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Butzbach. We have just passed the five-month mark from Miles's accident. In the last few months, we have had another crisis in our life. My sweet husband has been diagnosed with an early-stage laryngeal cancer and is getting radiation at my treatment site, no less, with one of my partners. It has added a layer of stress and sadness to an already tough time. But I have to say, I'm pretty amazed at how far we have come even with this new challenge. It for sure has not been easy. In fact, it has been so much work, but I am amazed that the human spirit can survive so much. I'm getting up, taking care of my family, working, often even finding myself enjoying my work again. I'm back working with a life coach, focusing on my health and physical well-being. We're doing some of the things we used to love, like going out to eat with friends and other couples, and we even have a party planned although I'm pretty sure the snow coming this weekend is going to nix our winter blues party. So what have I found that has helped me to regain my footing less than six months after losing Miles, my mom, and finding out that my husband has cancer? Well, first, let me reassure you, I still cry all the stinking time, and I feel like that is totally okay. We need to be where we are and not stuff the feelings down. What I see as great strides is that I'm able to find happiness and joy, that I have times where I think fondly of miles and the memories don't bring tears. I'm not quite sure how to organize this podcast, so I think I will sort of tell you what I've noticed along the way from the start that helped. My very first step, the first day, was a decision to call my primary to address my meds. I knew I would need to increase my antidepressant and get something to help me sleep. I am a crappy sleeper when everything is good. A crisis for me is pretty much a guarantee that I will lay awake the entire night. From my perspective, there is no need to wait on that call. If you know this will be a downward spiral for you, make the call as soon as you can. There is no shame in needing help in a crisis. I will tell you, Most primaries will bend over backwards to help their patients when they have a death in the family or a cancer diagnosis. Tell the person answering the phone, this terrible thing has happened. I need help to survive. If you just tell them, hey, I need to talk to the doctor, there may be a big wait. I will tell you, it was on the weekend and I called my doctor's emergency line to talk to him. It was a medical emergency. Any doctor worth their salt will call you ASAP. And again, If they don't, well, 
find a primary care doctor who actually cares about you. The second decision I made when all this happened is that I was going to get out of bed and dress every day, right from the first day. When we have a crisis, the urge is to hide in bed in jammies or ratty clothes, not bathing, keeping the drapes closed. I think when we start this, sometimes we have a hard time deciding when to stop it. For me, I decided that was a hard no. Out of bed, into a different outfit at some point every day. Maintaining normal hygiene. Showering at least every other day. Brushing my hair and teeth every day. I think from the start, that allowed me to feel like I was still a little bit normal. If that seems too much, set a date after the crisis. I will allow three days in bed, no shower, fuzzy teeth, and then I will get moving. But if you ask me, just not allowing that from the start is a good first step. <laughs> Let me tell you, this doesn't mean I looked good. I looked like death warmed over those first weeks. But I was clean in clean clothes, and that makes you feel a smidgen better. When we look in the mirror and we look terrible, there is something in our brains that tells us we also feel terrible. I didn't realize until a few weeks ago, but actually putting on some makeup, just a bit of concealer around my shadowed eyes, and a bit of blush on my pale cheeks has made me feel a bit better. I think for sure that would have been too much of an ask in those early days. But if you find yourself looking in the mirror and having a thought, I look as horrible as I feel, try to see if doing your hair, putting on a hint of makeup, or a nicer outfit helps. The next thing I became aware of navigating this was that I needed to allow help. And in a much more intense way than I had ever allowed in the past. We have always had paid help in our home. Nannies and people who helped with running a two-doctor, four-kid household. So I had no problem paying for help. But I had a huge issue asking for and receiving free help. I think I've mentioned before that a friend set up a meal train. Meal train is a website that allows people to sign up to bring a meal and share what they plan to bring so you don't get 15 nights of lasagna. Although the boys might have been fine with that, in all honesty. Having someone else plan and execute our meals took that off my to-do list. I didn't have to do anything except open the door and put out the food. If there are offers of food help, take them. It is one less thing to think about, and honestly, your people are desperate to find a way to be helpful. But when people say, anything you need, let me know, take them up on that. That was so hard for me to do at first. My thought was, well, I could do it, or I could pay someone to do it, so why would I ask a friend to do it? But again, our people wanted us to not have to figure it out. When they were on the way to the store and called, I did a quick survey of what we needed, and I gave them a list and Venmoed them when they dropped things off. I asked a friend to pick up family flying in for my mom's funeral which I will tell you, that friend deserves huge props because it was in the middle of a horrible storm. The plane was delayed multiple times. There were tornado warnings, torrential rains, road flooding. Wow, she was a trooper. I accepted offers of picking me up to go for a walk 
bringing me a Starbucks, stopping by with flowers and more. A family member made the memory boards for my mom's funeral and a group of family gathered to do the ones from Miles's funeral together. A friend who had worked on our house when it was being built texted me with an offer of help. Please, I told him, come hang this wall of pictures of Miles. It would have taken months to get done waiting for Phil or me to do it, but having it done made me so grateful to walk by and see his face over the years. When people ask if they can make something, say yes to whatever it is, because it is all love. Prayer shawls, sketches of miles, poems from children in younger grades. If someone wants to do something, let them. And again, don't feel guilty. You are not an imposition. You are loved and they want to show it. The initial week after Miles died, with my mom in the hospital dying as well, was so hard. I was terribly restless. I couldn't find anything that distracted me for any length of time. I couldn't focus to read or watch TV. I had horrible anxiety just sitting and visiting with all the family that came to the house. I'd absently scroll Facebook, but seeing all the happy people made me feel worse. There was one thing that I now know is actually two things wrapped up together that brought me some inner peace and relief. These were spending time in nature and moving my body. For the first few weeks, we walked outside daily and sometimes more than once a day. I walked like I was 80 years old, so slowly. Clutching Miles' stuffed toy Baba in one hand and Phil's arm with my other. It seemed like such an ordeal to just go outside for 20 minutes. But I always came in feeling better. There is something about nature. That the sun still shines, the breeze still blows, the birds still chirp it gives you a sense that life will go on and you will be able to someday reinsert yourself into that natural harmony. For me, at least, it was easier to forget for a moment outside. Phil and I were together, but silent, almost meditative much of the time. I wasn't sitting. Endorphins, those feel-good hormones, are released during walking. And I've come to believe that just being outside also triggers some of the feel-good hormones like oxytocin and serotonin, though I have a hard time finding any hard data to support this. As time progressed, I was able to add a weekly yoga class and a weekly Pilates class to my regimen. These helped so much in feeling like I was able to take a full breath and left me with a much-needed sense of peace afterwards. As I moved further into grieving, I went back to my life coach training to help me figure out my path. So much of life coaching is teaching people to allow instead of resist their emotions. Knowing this, I made the conscious decision to feel my emotions. The first weeks, I really worked on allowing the shock, disbelief, grief, crushing sadness, and all the others. The exception to this, I will admit, was that I actively worked on managing thoughts that led to anger. My 17-year-old son was driving the car, and he had such overwhelming guilt along with his grief that anger was one emotion I decided I wanted to try to curtail as much as possible. I didn't want there to be any sense that I was angry at him 
he had his own burdens without the added sense that his parents blamed him. And really, for most of us, anger is a secondary emotion when we can't feel the primary emotions of despair, sadness, or fear. It is a smokescreen that lets us have an emotion that feels slightly better than our true feelings. In the early weeks, I did not limit the time I spent in these emotions. I let them come whenever they needed to. As time went on and I went back to work, it became necessary to put them aside sometimes. But I make time every day to check in and feel what I'm feeling. Amazingly, some days it is now calm, peaceful, content, if it is not yet joyful. Along the way, I worked on fostering gratitude. It was so hard in the beginning to see that there was anything to be grateful for. My son was dead, and only a week later, my mother followed him. But there was so much to be grateful for. That Trey survived. That I had a chance to be with my mother and care for her in my absolute best way, both as a doctor helping to oversee her care and as a daughter, being the one to brush her teeth, bathe her, calm her that week leading up to Miles's accident. That Miles survived long enough to donate his organs, and that we were able to do what he would want, not what we wanted. That an amazing community rallied around us, fed us, loved us, sheltered us, and grieved with us. That people sent pictures of Miles that I had never seen, and told stories of him that I had never heard, which made it seem that I was getting a few more minutes with him. That there were moments that I felt his presence. Maybe you are having a hard time right now finding anything to be grateful for. This may be hugely presumptuous on my part, but think on if you have access to medical care, a place to stay and food to eat during this time a diagnosis that is potentially curable, family or friends who love and support you, days when the sun shines or you see a butterfly or flowers bloom. Numbering the blessings during this helped me so much. I actually made a list of 100 beautiful things that happened in the three months after he died. Doing this daily made me continue to see that our life had blessings that life could and would still have moments of joy. This is actually a perfect moment to tell you one of the things that life coaching did for me in this journey. A dear friend convinced me to join her coaching program. I told her I'm not yet ready to feel better or change any of my thoughts. She said, it's okay. We're just gonna be here to support you as you feel those feelings. So I joined. The first night, another client was talking about finding perfect moments in her life. I heard my brain say, my life will never be perfect again. I had no idea this thought was running in the background of my brain. But as soon as I saw it, I realized how toxic it was. I knew immediately it was not a thought I wanted to keep. But my brain was not ready to let go of life will never be perfect. So I asked myself, but could there be perfect moments? And my brain grudgingly agreed there could be. So these are what I look for right now. Not the perfect life, the perfect moments, and they are there. 
Similar to looking for blessings is being open to seeing beauty. If you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, you will have seen pictures I have taken in the last six months. Most of them are outside. Being open to seeing beauty, whether in nature, in a friend or family member's face, in a work of art, is balm for a grieving or stressed soul. I tell myself often, I am open to seeing beauty in the world around me. Maybe you can't see it today, but just telling yourself you are open to seeing beauty will make it possible for the universe to show you. Finally, I am just now getting to a point that I can do the next step. This is taking care of your physical body. For so long, I ate whatever, drank whatever, took meds to sleep, and just survived. As we entered 2022, I felt that I was able to begin working on taking care of my body. I scheduled my annual gynecologic exam, and I showed up to do it. I worked on my sleep habits and weaning off the meds to help sleep. I began to cut back on alcohol. An important thing to note is that for most of us, alcohol exacerbates our sleep issues. It may let you fall asleep easier, but the quality of sleep is worse. I began to eat foods again that fuel my body instead of things that just made me feel better in the moment. I started back on my skincare regimen. I added in some additional exercise. I began putting meditation back on my daily plan. I worked on drinking my water. And as my soul healed, I began to want to care for the shell that holds it again. That brings us to today. What I have learned to help ride the tsunami of a crisis, to just stay afloat initially, and then get to the shore when you're able. I'm out of the water. I'm at the edge of the waves where I can reach some warm, soft sand sometimes. I want to bring you with me out of the waves so that we can recover our strength together. Much love to you today. I hope that even if you are still struggling in the surf, this is helping you to find the ability to tread water a little more easily. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. Did you know you can get more information on my website, bestlifeaftercancer.com? There is also a Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD, where there is a group just for survivors. Here you are able to interact with me, ask questions, and get more help. I'd love to see you there. Have a great week, and I'll speak with you soon.